Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and thank you for leading us that way and for the reminder of our lives in the Lord's hands, and His faithfulness is great. And that's a great way to come into the Word of God, knowing that it is His Word and that His faithfulness is great to us. And so let me encourage you, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's been a joy to be through going through this study. We're in the last chapter of this study. I'd like you to read, picking up in verse 3 through 5, that's where we're going to be today. And then we'll go back for a little bit of a review and, and some extra things, I think, that um, need to be said because we didn't have enough time last week. But let's pick up in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. Paul says to his son in the faith and this pastor here in Ephesus, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, verse 5, and a constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That's where we're going to be today, and it's not a new topic for the Apostle Paul, sound doctrine. We'll look at that in just a minute. But last week, we really started this last chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, it's addressing a wide variety of topics to the, help the believer, much like a phone call perhaps you're having with someone you haven't talked to in a while. And you get towards the end, you know it's wrapping up, and then you begin to kind of rapid fire things you want to make sure you mention, and I forgot to tell you, those kinds of things. And so that's what we can kind of see here in this letter as Paul writes it to Timothy, including some things that need to be uh, put into practice in the church. And the first two verses helped us understand as he began this address, as he wraps this up, of the gospel and how work and the gospel are inseparable. Look back, if you would, just uh, five verses to verse one. He says this, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Now, the Apostle Paul addressed this and, and we took a good look at it. The integrity and attitudes that are commanded in this passage make it clear that servitude is at the heart of Christian, your Christian calling. It's, no one is exempt. You may not have a job, perhaps. Um, here, it particularly talks about whether you serve a believing boss or an unbelieving boss. Uh, giving them respect, whether you think they deserve it or not, and working hard without complaining are ways that you make the gospel look good. And failure in these areas on the other side and doing what the world does gives the gospel and the redeemed a black eye and really inhibits the spread of the gospel. And we looked a long time at all these words, the slave and master thing. And if you're thinking about, of course, American slavery, you're thinking completely opposite of what it's talking about here. And we gave you all those passages. So if you're unsure about all of that, uh, then go back and listen to last week's message on Spotify. That'll help you understand it. Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 5 through 9. There are a number of passages that we didn't get a chance to look at last week. And I think it helps us understand this really broad view and understanding of, of serving uh, in, the, in the greater part of the Christian life really marks a believer. And so we're going to look at those just briefly today, just for a few minutes. So stick with me. I'll give you them on the screen to save your time in looking them up. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, and we looked at this just briefly last week. It says this to the church in Ephesus where Timothy is now pastoring. He says, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters 
according to the flesh. So the idea there is that we all have a master according to the spirit. And who is that? That is Christ. So a master according to the flesh just differentiates whoever it is that you work for, whoever it is that you serve. You do that with fear and trembling and in sincerity of your heart as to Christ. You do it in such a way that you know Christ is watching. That's the fear and trembling part. You realize the Lord is evaluating how you're doing your serving. Then it says, not by eye service or as men's pleasers. So not just when people are looking, not just you might look good at a certain time, not that somehow you might pull off some, some thing that makes people think you're somebody that you're not, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You understand your higher calling is to serve well in these areas because you're actually a slave of Christ. And so you do that. And that work as from the heart like you would to him. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. So doing it because you want to, you render this service uh, to men, but you're actually doing it to the Lord. So you do it with a hearty knowledge of that. Verse 8, it says, um, it says, knowing that whatever good thing each one does as to the Lord and not to men. It's as to the Lord. Whatever it is, whatever render service you render, whatever good thing you do, you're doing it as unto the Lord. And this he received back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Regardless of what it is you do, the good things that you do, the Lord is watching. Your ultimate reward will be from him. And masters, it says in verse 9, do the same things to them. Make sure that you do it out of sincerity in your heart as to Christ, not as men pleasers, but slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. All the same things in this different category, if you are the one who is the employer, do the same things to those who serve you and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. He isn't more inclined to take your side or their side. He wants obedience from both sides. That's the issue. Then in Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, in all things, he says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In all things, whatever it is, an example of good deeds, whatever you put your hand to, with purity, in doctrine, dignified, so aligned with what the Word says to do, and doing it in such a way that it creates a respect, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, careful of what you say, so that the opponent will be put to shame. There's someone who accuses us all the time, Satan himself, and he is always looking for something to accuse us of, and right here he tells Titus in, in this church in Crete, listen, make sure you teach the church that you are watching what you say, and that's beyond reproach, that you know doctrine, you live it, and you're dignified, and be an example of good deeds, so that the opponent will have nothing bad to say. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters, those who are willingly serving other people in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. And so that just just dismisses a number of bad work habits and things that you would say. Not pilfering, so not stealing from the one you work for, but showing all good faith in everything, not just in pilfering things, but time, so that they will adore the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. What you do, whatever it is, is supposed to adorn the doctrine of God. Everything is about the doctrine of God and our Savior. All your service, all your faithfulness. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, this is well known. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous, he says, for good deeds. The people he's purified, the people he's saved, are to be zealous for good deeds. They should desire then to make the gospel look good. These things, he says to Titus, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's important, he says, to get these things into the church. Help them understand what's going on. If you think about, beloved, that your number one contact with the unredeemed world is your workplace, it shouldn't surprise us then that this is one of the, the main places where a black eye is given to Christianity and to the church. And it's given that because of the way those who call themselves believers operate in the public square. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever it is you do, if you're a student, if you're whatever it is, where you work for someone, uh, you work for yourself, whatever it is, do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The higher reward, which is this reward of salvation, should com compel you to whatever it is you do, you do it as unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so then if we think about that in light of verses 1 and 2 and these corresponding illustrations, we can see that everything you do, everything you apply yourself to should have the accompanying attitude of servanthood. See? And beloved, it backs into everything. Marriage is servanthood. Being a husband is servanthood. A believing man who commits to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 Loving your wives as just Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, commits his whole being to elevated servanthood for perhaps 50 or 60 years. He's never so elevated as when he serves his wife. And being a wife is servanthood too. But if you think about it, beloved, I tell guys this all the time. You never so look like Christ so much as when you get on uh, into your servant and you serve your wife. You take care of her needs. You do what she needs. As Christ loved the church. And gave her, gave her everything that the church needed. You're to serve your wife that way. You never look like Christ more than that. You never look like Christ more than when you excuse uh, behavior. When you forgive things without chasing them all down. You never look more like Christ than when you do that. Because God does that day in and day out for every single individual, doesn't he? And he overlooks even the wicked and his long suffering on, on their behalf. Waiting. And his long suffering is salvation for those who believe. See, And so... It's the same for a wife, servanthood. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be under them as to the Lord. You submit to them, hupakua, come up under them by loving that imperfect man that she's married to in a thousand day in and day out ways. She's showing her obedience to the Lord. Obedience to the word always adorns the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, remember it says if a wife has a, a husband, an unbelieving husband who wants to stay, let him stay. For how do you know that your own good behavior won't lead him to faith? That's the opportunity he's going to have. Your good behavior, you're married to an unsaved husband, and your good behavior, your servanthood, you're coming up under him as to the Lord, perhaps would bring him to faith. Family life is servanthood. Parenting is servanthood. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. That's what you don't want to do. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And that bring them up is the Greek verb ektrepho. That, that's the word to nourish. You nourish them in whatever way it is. It's a very tender, all-encompassing kind of work. Whatever it takes to nourish them in the discipline and the instruction. You're not to stand off from that servant type of leadership in nourishing them. That is part of your job. You get right down there in the nourishing. You want them to come to faith. 
It means giving all you have in order to see your children grow into spiritual maturity. And it's giving and it's giving and it's giving and it's sacrificing and it's sacrificing and it's sacrificing. Just like God our Father does for us every day, it's that kind of sacrifice. And as we've seen, the workplace is servitude, being an employee is servanthood, giving the best hours of your day to an educational or corporate enterprise or government or business or whatever it is, and submitting yourself and working as unto Jesus. Being an employer rightly understood is servanthood too. You serve those who are under you with a heart for their success. So true servanthood is Christ-centered. It leads us to Christ. It makes us look like Christ and makes Christ look good. It's all of those things. And so it's much bigger and much broader than the little keyhole part we're looking at, which is how do you act in the workplace because you need to adorn the gospel there and you're going to adorn the gospel there by not talking bad about your employer and making sure that you work hard in front of them and all the other times too and that you realize that you're working for Christ and not just for them. I mean, listen to Jesus. You want to know how much it backs into your life. John chapter 13, verse 12. And this is right on the heels of his disciples arguing about who could be greater in Christ's kingdom and who gets to sit on the right-hand side of God. And they're arguing about it and they're mad at each other and they come to the upper room. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he says to them, he says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, the Koreos. Uh, that's my proper place. I am that one who requires and has the right to require from you whatever it is. So I am, he says. If then I, the Lord, and the teacher washed your feet, you also t- should wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What did he do? He served them. That's the example. I served you, he said, even though I was the one who was over you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave, a doulos, is not greater than his master, a Koreos, nor is one who has sent greater than the one who sent him. At your, in your position, he says, you're not greater than me, and yet I served you. And you know what's interesting? He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You want a direct line to blessing of God? Become a servant. Take care of needs of people. And Luke 22, same situation. Luke records a few other words that Jesus said. I love this. Same circumstance. And and they're pertinent to our point. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Curiuo, that's the verb form of curios. They actually act as lords over those who are under them. So they demand things and they require things and all of that stuff. And they have the right to do that. And, And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. They take care of all the needs. They make sure it's taken care of, but they require certain things. But it's not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Diakoneo. That's, that's a verb for serving. That's where we get our word deacon and certainly the proper noun deacon in, in its form as an officer in the church. But all of us have that requirement, see, to serve Who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one, again, the same word, serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I'm among you as the one who serves? There's your example. So if Christ, the eternal Son of God and creator of the universe, washed the feet of his children, serving his disciples, how much more ought we as adopted sons and daughters do the same to one another? That is the point, you see? It's a lifestyle of servanthood. It moves into every place that you are. But in our particular passage, it has to do with how you conduct yourself in the workplace. And although it seems to be a difficult thing to get on top of, and it is, isn't it? Especially the way we interact with those we work for, the power to live 
in servanthood comes from the fact that the ultimate servant is in us and we are in him. And the New Testament repeatedly affirms that. See, the very service that we're supposed to render is this, we have the spirit of that individual living in us now. So it's not that we can't get on top of it. We can and Paul's point, I think, is, is precisely this in his own example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. And I think this is super important as you want to think about how do you get on top of this complaining in the workplace and, and uh, moaning about your position and what's required of you and how it's, how it's presented to you if it's, if, it's a, if it's in a Christian environment, how they present it to you and how you have to work under it and all that stuff. Listen, listen to what Paul said. He says, for though I am free from all men, so I'm not required to be under anybody, I have made myself a slave to all. And that is the aorist active indicative. It, it, if, if you're redeemed, you can do this. And it's reflexive. I've made myself slave to all. Aorist active just means at a certain point, I realize that my job for the gospel is going to be that I'm going to be a servant to everybody. I'm going to put myself in a position where I can serve them as an example, just like Christ just showed us with his disciples. I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as those under the law, though not being myself under the law, I'm not going back under, the, under this law, so that I might win those who are under the law. I put myself in a position to serve them. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak. See, I made myself, in, in, I understood, reflexive, myself, I understood, I have to get on top of this. This is important. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak, I've become all things to all men so that I may be all, by all means save some. Mark it. Here's the key. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That's why I have made myself a slave. That's why I've established that I have to be serving so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, do, then, then, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Beloved, self-control in all things, all these places of doulos are going to require self-control in all things. You are going to have to come to the point where you realize that your life, in order to make the gospel look good, is going to put you in a position where you serve people. He says this, I run in such a way as not without aim. Listen, you're not going to win the 800. You're not going to win the 400. You're not winning uh, a marathon without disciplining your body. You're going to have to figure out how to do it. It's not going to come naturally. That's the whole idea of the passage. I've made myself, I've established at some point that this is my job for the sake of the gospel. And so I have to work at it and make it my slave Dulas o geo. It is to place your body in a position where you lead it away into slavery to Christ. The idea there is make it my slave, is leading away in chains, 
But the idea we understand is, is that we get to the point where we are leading our body away in captivity to what we have to do for Christ. That's the idea. I discipline my body. I wear it down. That's the idea. I'm wearing my body down, breaking it down to build it back up so it'll do what it's supposed to do so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be qualified. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Listen, you're not going to win a boxing match if you haven't learned uh, the, the procedure to get there. You've got to learn the combinations. You've got to start putting them together. It's not going to happen unless you know how to do that. The first response is not going to be the correct one. You're going to have to lead yourself as a slave. You're going to have to make yourself in your mind understand to get on top of this. Willing, volitional servitude. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, so powerful. For you were called to freedom. Paul says, I'm free from all men. In Christ you're free. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Loving servanthood. Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That be subject, come up under one another in the fear of Christ. Out of concern then for what Jesus thinks and the example he left us, recognizing he's watching, be subject. Literally, rank yourself under each other. Now, those are powerful passages, okay? We could have spent any number of weeks on just one of them. But because our focus is the workplace, I wanted just to take a minute and back up and let you see the requirements for the workplace are not separate and isolated from the requirements of our whole life and for the same reason that they are to bring, make the gospel look good. They adorn the gospel when we are subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I think it will help us with our habitual complaining and disrespect coupled with self-justified slothfulness and prideful arrogance and an unsubmissive attitude in the workplace because all those types of things hamstring the gospel. They all hamstring the gospel. And we wonder why the church isn't growing when we recognize that our number one contact with an unredeemed world are the people that we work with every single day. And if we're doing precisely what they do, then why in the world would they make, think the gospel is going to look good? It hasn't changed you or me. Now, let's look at our next section. I think we've got that, and I don't want to belabor it, so look at verse 3 if you would. If anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Now, we're just taking part of a sentence. This is one sentence. If you've got to diagram Paul's sentences, you are in for some work, okay? Because some of those sentences are a paragraph long. But he's teaching about signs of a false teacher. And he starts out with the evidence of a false teacher. He's teaching a different doctrine. His teaching doesn't agree with what Jesus said or produce a life of godliness. And that kind of sums up what he's saying there. Tozer was pretty much required reading when I was a young believer in, in my era, and I certainly would encourage you to read A.W. Tozer. But in the book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, he says a very important thing, and I, I think it's an interesting to, when you know when this was written, but he says, quote, we've gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches, and I would say in seminaries, and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of scripture, science, and human sentiment. And that is true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the other out. 
He goes on to say, little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found completely on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. He says we need to return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles when it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. End quote. The book was written in 1966. And so you can see that the, as old as that book is, the letter to Timothy is older still, but it's dealing with the exact same problem, which is still prevalent today, even more so. We've begun to see that Paul exhibits a huge concern in the pastoral letters for sound doctrine. People often ask me on the side, you talk about false teachers and sound doctrine a lot. That's because it's always mentioned in the New Testament. We go through it constantly. It, is a, it was a problem in the Old Testament as well. False prophets were everywhere saying things God said, he, not that God didn't say. God said, I didn't send them, neither did they say what I said. It's always that way. But Paul mentions doctrine, the Laskalia, seven times in 1 Timothy, not to mention its verbal form. So if you remember in chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy is told to command those who teach not to teach heterodidoskaleo, a different kind of doctrine, anything different. And what we have in our passage is the exact same verb. So he's returning right back to the same topic, heterodidaskaleo. And, and if we think about the word and the way it's put together, it's probably a Paulism. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit to, to pen this compound verb. Hetero is another of a different kind and didaskaleo is teaching. So the idea represented is teaching of a different kind. Something that conflicts with revealed truth. Deviating from the truth. A very general statement with really broad application. And the verb is present active infinitive in chapter 1 verse 3. In other words, this describes them. It's their identity. They are the ones who, they, he's the one who's teaching a different doctrine. This isn't a compliment. He's teaching a different doctrine. It describes them. And it doesn't matter who it is and it doesn't matter what it is. Principle number one, one of the signs that he is a false teacher is that he is teaching something new, a different doctrine. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Paul warned of this in 2 Corinthians 2.17. He talked about hucksters. That's the word he used. One who corrupt the word. And the idea of changing it like, like a shady salesman to make it more palatable. Uh, to make it look better like a used car. Or try to manipulate it to accomplish some gain for themselves. He warned the church again in 2 Corinthians 4.2. We looked at all of this very carefully when we went through them. About those who handle the word dishonestly. It's the, it's the word for luring or baiting a trap. They do it that way and cause people to believe things that are untrue for their own purposes. This is not surprising. But, and, and this is what I said to first service. This may, this may sit hard with you. When you start talking about true doctrine, we're so used to being so ecumenical and so open-minded that we've kind of dismissed anything that could be true doctrine. And as soon as you say this is true, you're the one who's the one uh, who's disrupting the peace. See, You're the one who is, uh, is ungracious. But Paul's very clear about this. And the words mean something. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul exalts sound doctrine. We just looked at that. In chapter 4, verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith, and have good teaching that you have followed. Those, those words have meaning. And behind those meanings, they have actual commands. In chapter 4, verse 13, 
until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Remember, we looked at that. That actually is something well known. The reading of the Scripture. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply? It's been going on for 3,000 years. It's only in the last 50 where that has become uh, the exception and not the rule. You hardly find anyone doing that today. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to our word, teaching. Chapter 4, verse 16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Which doctrine? True doctrine. The words have meaning. Persevere in them. Because if you do this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and our word, teaching. Chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our, here's our word, teaching may not be slandered. You don't want to live in such a way that you contradict direct commands from the Lord. And in chapter 6, in verse 3 and 4, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he's conceited and he understands nothing. And so we've noted this so far, Paul's repeated emphasis then on sound doctrine. And we can make this connection. First Timothy, with its great emphasis on doctrine, has that basic practical purpose we pointed out in our introduction. To teach the people in Ephesus how to live, to know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. So there are commands that have to be put in place in order for us to conduct ourselves correctly. It can't be this nebulous, we're not really sure what it means, and so we kind of do whatever we want. Because that's what ends up being the case, see? And we pointed this out in our illustrations. There's this dynamic connection between our doctrine and the way we live. This truth is directly opposite to much contemporary Christian thinking today. Often today we hear people say, we don't need more doctrine. What we need is more practical preaching. Really? Now I certainly agree that there has to be a preaching that's applied because I've told you and taught you ever since I ever came here. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's always the job of the teacher. You have to make all those connections. You don't want to just do some academic thing. See, it isn't just about what we know about it. It's an application of what we've learned. And so I agree, there has to be some practical connection to what is taught. But we must not agree that there's no connection between doctrinal and practical. In fact, what we know and believe has everything to do with how we live. Doctrine's at the heart of practical living. And here's the question. Do you love God now? Will you love him less if you learn more about him? Most likely not. Unless you're in love with God the Father or God the Son of your own imagination. This is the sticking point today. You're in love with a Christ you've made up. Not one that's the real Christ. See? It's not a shopping center and you go to get to pick the Christ that you want and leave out everything else, okay? Now, there is this personal relationship, Christ, no question. Scripture teaches your sin and everything that was against you, Christ is nailed to the cross. And in your place, he substituted himself. But on the broad scope, there is requirements for everyone. And if you say you love Jesus, and we've read it numerous times, if you love me, Jesus said, you will what? Obey my commandments. John said, if you love God, you'll obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. You don't need to dismiss the one part that you don't like. That's why these words mean something. Doctrine means something. It has behind it requirements for life living that indicate who you are. But if you're in love with God the Father or God the Son or the Holy Spirit of your own imagination, then you're going to hate the messenger and you're going to reject the message. 
Because that's not the Jesus that you know, see. I hear that so, so, so often. In 30 years, I can't even count how many times I've heard that. Clear teaching of the word. I, I just don't believe that, see. It's just not, that's not the Jesus I know. Even though we've read clearly what Jesus says. But if you're not just in love with the Father or the Son or the Spirit of your own imagination, then the more you learn about Him, the more you'll love Him. And the more you learn of His excellencies and His holiness and His grace and His mercy and His love, the greater will be your grasp of His character and the closer to Him you'll draw and the more you begin to look like Him. See? And I don't think we can say this strong enough. The greatest need of the church today, and I say this with all emphasis because this is a real problem in the modern church, is not less doctrine but more doctrine about God and about salvation and about ourselves and about character and about church and about family. Our greatest need is to know God better and we can learn more of Him only from His Word. And this is not the first time Paul has had to deal with this topic. He deals with it over and over again. Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit to deal with this topic all the time. Why? Because he has to sort out the true teachers from the false. That's the reason why we study it. And I'll give you some illustrations here in a minute of what to listen for. It's very hard to hear the difference. Typically, it's what's not included instead of what is included. Uh, many times, if, you're, if you've carefully read the Word most of your life, something that's wrong will immediately be on your radar. But it's what's not included that's harder to pick up. And the point of the new section, I think, is that there are false teachers and false teaching, and we have to be able to recognize them. There's no point that this is, no way this is written in a vacuum. Paul wants Timothy and the church to recognize false teachers, so he gives the signs of a false teacher very clearly. And so I think that you can say it's pretty important by the amount of times that Paul and other writers deal with it. Jesus in John 8, 8 44, identifies Satan. And I, I think you remember this passage he, as he's talking to the Pharisees. And, and of course, he says that their father was Satan and that he's a murderer, but not just a murderer, that he's also a what? A liar and the father of lies, and they were speaking his language. And so he offended them very, fairly rapidly. And, and one of the manifestations of Satan's defining characteristic of lying is the spread of false teachers. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, we looked at that already. We saw that all false doctrine is doctrines of demons. Scripture is very clear about that, and I give you a lot of illustrations to help you understand that. But cults and false doctrine, they're all doctrines of demons. These are ideas demons have cooked up and men present. They're disguised, of course, and they're going to come across to the undiscerning church as servants of righteousness. Characteristics, though, of lying is the spread of false teachers. They're going to come across, though, looking righteous. In chapter 2, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. Paul says that you fell for this so easily. Uh, these are people who besiege the church and the gospel and the clear teaching of the word. And they have done it all through the history of the church. Because whenever God sets the truth up, Satan endeavors to sow lies and falsehood and error. And, and Ephesians, again, 3, 9, speaking to the church, he says, To bring to light what is the administration, oikonomia, that's the stewardship, the ordered parceling out, if you will, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. There is a mystery now revealed. Whenever we see that word mystery in the New Testament, that's something that was hidden and is no longer hidden. Now it's made clear. 
And so here's the thing. The church, and especially its leaders, have been given the responsibility, the stewardship of administering or managing the truth that salvation and Christian living are by faith. And this is the most important thing that they do. And you can make the argument that it is the main job of faithful ministers. And Timothy has been left here by Paul to correct this trend going on in Ephesus of a few in leadership who are obscuring and misdirecting the faithful discharge of God's administration, his stewardship of these truths by faith. Dressing it up, adulterating it, handling it in a crafty way, speculating, uh, produced in the people confusion. It produced endless uh, questions and arguments, immersing themselves in things that didn't matter. That's not what it was supposed to produce. We're going to see in just a minute, uh, the last thing we realize is what sound teaching produces and what false teaching produces. And we'll see that in just a second. But that prevented the church uh, to have the conduct that it would need to promote a by-faith gospel. And this is why the explicitly stated purpose of the letter is to teach the proper conduct of God's household, which is the church. What's supposed to be done and what's supposed to be taught and how is it supposed to be taught? And for Paul, everything rides on the conduct and administration of God's household in the church. And if the leaders are doing what they should do, teaching faithful doctrine. The church will be equipped to do what it's supposed to do. And so Timothy is told by Paul to identify these false teachers and put an end to this whole idea of introducing all these new things to tantalize the people. As Alistair Begg is, is famous for saying, it's one of my favorite uh, comments from a modern teacher. He says, quote, using the Bible as the springboard for all kinds of ideas. That's eisegesis, putting in what you want it to say looking around and finding something that fits your fancy and then launch a rocket off of it, he says. People who say, quote, that was amazing, wasn't it? Remarkable what he got out of that. And of course, then Alistair Begg says, well, of course, it's because he put it in there before he got it out of there. That really sums up what goes on a lot of times from pulpits across the country and around the world. If you go back to chapter 6 and verse 2, at the end, Paul says to Timothy, these things, remember, teach and exhort. So what things does he have in mind? Well, everything he's brought up to this point in the epistle. It, certainly it takes in the teaching on the workplace and being a good employee, but it's, it's not just that. Started in chapter 1 with a proper understanding of the law of God and with a proper understanding of the gospel and the saving gospel and with a proper understanding of the majesty of God in verse 17. And it goes back to chapter 2 where Paul told Timothy to pray for the lost and the instruction on the role of women in the church. And it takes in chapter 3 and the qualifications for elders and for deacons and who's allowed to teach and what those requirements are. And it takes in chapter 4 where Timothy is instructed by Paul concerning regularly recurring false doctrine. And then you have this way of to measure proper ministry success then from God's perspective will look just like this and he gives specific doctrine there and then he takes in chapter 5 and how he's to relate to people from all walks of life and what the ministry to widows should look like and then we get to our current passage and so they are proposing something new and it could disagree with some of the things we've seen already it could disagree with some of the other uh, books in, that we see in, in scripture and then the other part is this look at verse 3 again Proposing something new, and verse 3 says, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. And that's principle number two. Principle number two is this. Identifying a false teacher, they deny things in Scripture, they don't accept certain things taught in the Word of God. This is very common, very common today. If you question progressive Christianity very hard, they'll just say, I don't believe that. 
I don't believe that's what God intended and I don't think that we can be spiritual enough to know what he really intended. But it can't be that because that would make God very unloving and we know God's not unloving. See, that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? So we can't understand it that way. And all that would include, of course, just like Paul says to Timothy, words that Jesus said. It would include things that don't produce a life of godliness. They teach differently than the word of God. They affirm things differently than what it says in the scripture. They add to the scripture. They speak things that the scripture does not teach. And then this idea expressed here is that true doctrine, faithful teaching based on Christ will create genuine godliness in life. Those words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. When it says the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it say? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All the words of God are considered what? The words of Christ. Just in general, he has the spirit of a living, living, uh, living Christ has moved in the hearts of, and minds of those who wrote the word. 1 Thessalonians 1.8 For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. The scripture is called the word of the Lord, and it's sounded forth from you. It's not being specific about certain things, just saying the word of the Lord. All the scripture has sounded forth from you. And so Paul's patting them on the back and saying, you've done exactly what you're supposed to do. And the word of the Lord is a serious issue. Why? Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? From the word of Christ. So the word of Christ is the vehicle by which faith used in parallel here with salvation is understood. False teachers, false understanding of salvation produces false professions of faith. You see, if you don't make Christ clear, then how can someone respond to him? If you haven't made clear what he requires, if you haven't made his, his objective observation of your life and the fact that you are dead in, your, in trespasses and sin and that apart from his salvation, you have no hope, then there's going to be false professions of faith. And that's what we have. We have a church that's a mile wide and an inch deep. And many are not born again because they haven't accepted this idea that Christ's commands are for us and God's commands are for us and not for him. And that part of the fruit of the spirit of being born again is the fact that you bring forth these things that look like Christ. Those are Produced through the Word of God. So Paul's made this clear then in, in 1 Timothy 6.3. None of this is a minor thing. And, and it could be something that disagrees with a virgin birth. Teaching something other than the sinless perfection of Christ. Which if you teach something other than that, that's going to bump into his ability to be a substitutionary atoning death on the cross, right? So if he's not sinless, then there's a problem because he's atoning for his own sin, not for yours. Something besides his physical bodily resurrection. It could be something that undermines his miraculous life and works, his second coming, his high priestly ministry of intercession, his thousand-year physical reign on earth. It could be a denial of the accuracy and the clarity and the authority of Scripture. That's the whole idea of we can't possibly understand the mind of God, what he's saying here, but we know it can't be this, right? It can't be this. 
And so they fuzz that all up and they make it impossible for people to understand it. And so then it's not a mystery revealed. It's a mystery that's still a mystery. And so nothing that's been said now becomes clear. Now it's still all obscured. Is that what God intended when he said this is a mystery now revealed? And, and, you know, inspiration of Scripture, all that, inerrancy. And this, this is just the tip of the iceberg, see. And sometimes you have to listen and find out what's excluded. And sometimes you have to listen and see what they're actually saying. Because it seems like every month there's something else and they are all over the place. All over the place. I was in, I was in a church, I told you, out in Arizona a couple months ago. And, and um, huge, five campuses and uh, I'm sitting like a thousand people. And the speaker gets up to say what he's going to say. And he misuses a passage of scripture and then speaks and says whatever he wants to say. And I looked around. Not a single person had a Bible. Nobody had a tablet open. Nobody opened their Bible. And first of all, a ridiculous passage they pulled out and, and one that people know. But the thing that marked it for me was they didn't expect to open their Bible, you see. It's like Joel Osteen. This is the Bible. We believe what it says. We are who he says this. And then he puts it down and he never opens it again. And never, neither do the other 35 or 40,000 people who are sitting in there. That was what they expect. That's what hit me. They didn't expect to have the Bible open. But it sounded good to your ears. See? Whatever he was going to say could sound good to your ears, especially if you were deceived and different Jesus and different spirit and all of that. See? The sign of the false teacher will always be that they affirm something different than the scripture. They're not willing to consent to healthy words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they leave stuff out. Present tense, not willing to consent to sound words. He's not in agreement with. Hugia ino, that's the word sound. It's things that are healthy. That's the idea. They, They don't consent to the things that are healthy. The wholesome words, the beneficial words, the life-giving words that are namely the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. They avoid that. They don't get their teaching from Jesus. They'll do something different. It'll be a vision. It'll be uh, some revelation, some dream, some self-help, some self-affirming quote, some psychological insight. It'll always be something else, see? Some self-generated idea to spice it up or make it interesting or modern and mark it. It will undoubtedly be intended to make the speaker and the hearer feel more faithful and more insightful and more spiritual and more reflective. Anything but sound words from Scripture. But it will make you feel that way. That you are, you know more now and you're more sympathetic to the heart of God and whatever. Although you didn't study God's Word and you don't know what God said. But somehow what you're going to do is going to be very, very pleasing to God and you're very, very spiritual. That's what it's all going to sound. It's always wrapped up that way, see. And then this last part, and we'll wrap up today because this is really where the rubber meets the road. Look at the last part of verse 3. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness. And the key to understanding this last part is a preposition conforming. That's the word kata, which just means what does it produce? And so that's principle number three, identifying a false teacher. It's in the form of a question. What does their teaching produce? This is the definitive test. Does it produce godliness? See, and we've said this before. How can you be godly if you don't know what he requires? If those things are excluded, there's no way to be conformed to the image of Christ, see? 
They're going to add to Scripture. They'll deny the Scripture. They'll say it can't mean that. We're not really sure what it means. They will also, because the absence of scriptural truth, produce a life that lacks godliness. They'll typically weed out passages that are related to godliness. Things that scripture forbids will be excluded or softened. Under grace, God will forgive, whatever it is, over and over. Don't worry about it. Stay how you are, right? You know what the real problem with the Super Bowl commercial, he gets us, you know what it is? That somehow, with all the cool uh, ways that you could advertise and writers and everything, it was so hip, they wanted Jesus to be so, so accepted. What was the real problem with that? That Jesus just accepts you however you are. That's perfectly fine that we differ in our lifestyle choices, that we're, that we're homosexual, whatever it is. It's not a problem. You know what the problem with that is? That sounds really good, except that just excludes a bunch of scriptures about godliness and what the body of Christ has to look like. You know what would have been better? Christ saves us. And such were some of you. You used to be a meth head. You used to be a, a prostitute. You used, to, you used to steal from your employer. You used to whatever, see? But he saves us and he's redeemed us from those things. And from a hundred other things, see? We don't need some slick advertiser trying to make Jesus more palatable. We got plenty of false teachers around the country and around the world doing that already. What we need is uh, to return to true doctrine. What does it mean to repent and confess your sins? What does it mean to be sorry for what you've done? To recognize that every lifestyle choice isn't created equal. You've decided to do something that is abhorrent to the holy God. And he loves you and he gave his son as your exchange. But you're going to have to recognize your, that sin, see. That is so key. But it was just so obvious. And, and you know, there's so much, you know, writing about that. Oh, don't be so hard-nosed. They did try to do their best, whatever. It wasn't that hard to figure out what to say, except... If you would have said some said some of you, you used to be a homosexual, but now you're not. And you used to be a meth head, but you're, now you're not. Whatever. Now you're offending everybody. But Jesus said, listen, I'm the stone. You either trip over me and be broken, or I'm going to fall on you and you'll be crushed. You'll be cast away where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die. You've rejected the one thing that could save you from this lifestyle that you think God gave you. He didn't, but you won't know that because you won't know what the Word of God says. See, Truth is not being brought to bear on life, so there will be an absence of godliness, of maturity, of spirituality. And it just grieves me so much to think that people who are in in a homosexual lifestyle or in some other lifestyles abhorrent to God, and, and, but they'll think that it's okay. They're going to be fine. Because God gets us. It'd have been better to say Satan gets us. That, that would have been perfect for that. I mean, that could have been the byword. Oh, he gets us, all right. And, and this illustration, just so I think appropriate, we're going to wrap up. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he said, And Jesus gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. And, and just to sum that up, and we could spend a lot of time there, but Jesus gave pastors and teachers to the church. Now, what do you think they're supposed to teach to get the listed results? Okay, let's just be real about that. If you're going to get, if you're going to get equipping for works of service, you're going to have to know what those are. What are you supposed to be living your life doing? Right? And, and 
building up of the body of Christ in strength. Well, how are you going to do that unless you tear down what was there before and you begin building back in a way that you'll be able to run to get the prize? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and knowing what we believe and why we believe it, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You're going to be a, a Christ reprint. What do you think these guys have to teach in order for that to happen? It can't be whatever. In order to make sure you're not tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, everything that comes along, every teaching, the trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming, people will come along and say whatever. How are you going to know the difference between the true and the false if you don't know what's true? See, so that's what has to be done. It's just implied, right? It can't be we don't really know. Otherwise, what would be the point of the passage? There'd be no way for us to come to that understanding and to come to that maturity. Faithfully teaching the unvarnished truth will result in godliness. The ultimate test of truth is ensuing godliness, a consistent growth in spirituality, both personally and in the church. Because mark it, truth will always result in godliness when it's applied. You know, when I read the Word of God and I see what it requires, I mean, I can know what it says, but it's not going to produce godliness until I apply it. And when I give it to you and I teach clearly what the Word of God says, then I'm not responsible for your applying it, but you will grow if you do. But if you never hear it, there's no possibility for your growth, see? Truth will always result in godliness when it's applied. The Word of God, if the whole counsel of God is the source of the teaching and the preaching, that will produce healthy spiritual behavior. I remember Paul said, as he it was in Acts, he's leaving the church in Ephesus, I did not refrain from teaching you what? The whole counsel of the Word of God. I didn't leave anything out for three years. He continued to do that. He labored over it. He said he wept over it to make sure they knew what God expected. It can't be whatever. It can't be, well, that couldn't be it. Error can never produce godliness. But mark this, beloved. It can build a big church. And it can make the name of the false teacher well known. And it can bring in a lot of money. And thus it can appear to be blessed by God. This is the conversation I had with a good buddy of mine from high school who I was staying with. And I went to church with him. This is, that was his church. And I said those very things to him. You think that you're being fed the word of God, but you are not. And although in my one time there, I didn't hear anything specifically that was false doctrine... The history of this church and the founder of this church, you should research a little bit of that. Recognize that building a huge ministry and the false teacher's name well known and tons of money coming in and you're doing things that, that uh, are the heart of Christ, right? That's what they say. That could appear to be blessed by God. You think you're being taught the word of God. You didn't open your Bible. When's the last time you witnessed to anybody? Have you ever given the gospel out since you started attending here? Because that didn't go out and that, that training is certainly not part of what they do. Because false teachers will be all over the place. They'll talk about Jesus. They'll talk about the heart of God and the heart of their ministry. Though will not be the word of God. And as we'll see in just a few verses, an obsession with money is going to be one of the signs of a false teacher. We'll look at that today. We don't have time. What false teaching won't produce is godliness. It won't produce reverence or holiness and devotion or consecration. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. See, 
It won't produce Christ-likeness. The words of Christ. Only the word of God can produce that. Only the word of God can produce a living holiness. Not legalism, not conforming because you want people to think something of you, but actually out of the love of Christ, bearing the fruit of the truth. So if you want to check for the signs of a false teacher, take a look at their life and the fruit of those that follow them. Is there holiness there? Is there a desire to take up the cross and follow him? Because you'll very rarely hear a false teacher say that. Take up your cross and follow Jesus unless they dumb down the take up your cross to something it doesn't mean. Only the word of Christ can put to death the deeds of the flesh and separate you from all worldliness. Ephesians 5.1 Paul says to the church, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You'll never hear a false teacher say that, okay? And there must not even... There must be no filthiness and no silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It'd be good to finish that Super Bowl commercial with that verse, huh? That no one deceive you with empty words. It's precisely the point here in Ephesus. Don't let anybody tell you any differently than that, okay? That's a false teacher who does that. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. A good test of a teacher's teaching is to take a look at what it produces in his life and the life of the church, and that's where we're going to close today, all right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. A little bit over time. Lord, we thank you today for a time to be in your word. We thank you for its power. It really is powerful. And you know how I struggled with all of this this week. You know um, how I grieved over it and worked over it and tried to put it together in such a way that it could be clear to not fall into uh, condemnation, be not many teachers. And so, Father, I pray that you'll use your word and take it and let it go out in power amongst us and those who are watching and, and those who will hear it later. And, Father, I pray it'll produce the type of fruit that is righteousness and that is uh, equipped for every good work and shored up against the winds of doctrine and, and, and the back and forth of deceitful people. And Lord, help us to be uh, salt and light in the world and, and to those who are around us and our loved ones who are caught up perhaps in false teaching and make it clear in grace uh, that uh, what's going on there and why it's important. And so Father, I pray that you'll do your work through your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for a church that uh, loves your word, a church that's mature, a, thing, a church that has many teachers who teach faithfully. We thank you for this. We thank you that, uh, and I pray that you'll just do what you wish through us as you wish it in your own timing. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen.